That's a good word for us. Really introduces our sermon this morning. Rachel's parents go to Orlando every June, and occasionally uh, we join her on that trip. And so when Caleb, who's 10, when he was about to turn one, or he had just turned one, uh, we went to Orlando with him. Well, no one tells you when you are a new and expecting parent uh, how much vacations change when you have children. Namely, they cease to become vacations, but you just get as exhausted on vacation with children as you do at home with work and responsibility. But uh, nonetheless, we went, and our first child, and we're in Orlando, and we made a rookie mistake, and we decided, let's run over to the Magic Kingdom. This would be great. I mean, we were there, and we could, and so we went, and we decided we could just spend a little bit of time there, and it'd be, it'd be great, you know, to introduce our baby boy to the happiest place on earth. I remember spending about two hours in Cosmic Ray's Starlight Diner in Tomorrowland because there was air conditioning in there and there were no long lines. And uh, the happiest place on earth was making a couple of parents uh, struggle with unhappiness. And the only attractions I remember us doing while we were there was I rode on Dumbo's flying the flying elephant with Caleb and Caleb fell asleep while we were going through It's a Small World After All. We paid a whole lot to go into that park for those two attractions, but uh, great memories, right? Disney World has done an incredible job of marketing themselves as the happiest place on earth because those who have been there, particularly on hot and busy days, know that happy is sometimes hard to come by there. Now, don't get me wrong, we have a lot of fun when we go, but uh, we've also experienced some of our lowest points relationally navigating through Disney World together. One of the greatest pursuits known, <clears throat> I want to clear this throat. <clears> throat. One of the greatest pursuits known to man is the pursuit of happiness. Excuse me for that. But it's one of, uh, that the Declaration of Independence has uh, mentioned as an inalienable right from our Maker. Most people would describe their greatest desire for their lives, and particularly for their friends and those people that they care most about, their family. They just want them to be happy, right? That's what you say, I just hope you're happy. I just hope you can, you do what makes you happy. But how do we do it? How do we pursue happiness? Some people go to Disney World to pursue it, but is there a better place to pursue happiness? There have been a lot of studies and even books written about something called the happiness paradox. Essentially, scholars, writers, they point out that if one's ultimate goal in life is happiness, you'll never achieve it. Happiness comes as a byproduct of other pursuits. Viktor Frankl, that Holocaust survivor, states it in this way, happiness cannot be pursued. It must ensue. And it only does so as the unintended side effect of one's personal dedication to a cause greater than oneself or as the byproduct of one's surrender to a person other than oneself. So happiness can't be pursued. It just comes as a byproduct. It comes as a side effect. So rather than pursuing happiness, we should all practice what I would say is the pursuit of meaning, which I believe produces happiness as a byproduct. In fact, a pursuit of meaning in the Christian life brings about more than happiness. It brings joy. So over the next few weeks, we're going to look at the book of Philippians, which may be uh, thought of as the happiest book in the Bible. 
I know a lot of y'all uh, love this New Testament epistle. You would probably say it's one of your favorites, if not your favorite. But to be the happiest book in the Bible, you would imagine that the circumstances surrounding this letter had to be just completely pleasurable, right? But that's so far from the truth. Philippians is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a church at Philippi. And when Paul was writing this, he was more than likely in prison in Rome. Very likely that he's in chains as he's either dictating or writing this letter. And he's awaiting a trial where if it turns out one way, it may lead to his execution. So his circumstances leave him in inescapable chains. But the letter indicates that Paul was in a state of inescapable joy, even there in the prison. Who expects a writer in similar circumstances to write a letter like this? But Paul knew the secret to happiness, and he knew that joy is not dependent on circumstances. So because we sometimes come to church and folks think that uh, uh, it's pie in the sky that we talk about or uh, that it's disconnected from reality, as we study this book, I want you to put yourself there. Paul, in a prison, in chains, away from all the people that he cares about most, awaiting what could be a death sentence. He's experienced so much loss in his life, and it's there that he finds a deeper well to drink from that is supplying him with inescapable joy. And here's the best news. That same well is available to you and me today. So turn with me to the first chapter of Philippians. We're going to read beginning in the very first verse, and I'll read through verse 8. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all, because I have you in my heart, since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers with me of grace with me, for God is my witness how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Paul opens his letter with a greeting filled with praise and gratitude to God for these dear friends of his that he considers members of his family of faith. And as we study this passage this morning, I would ask the question today, is anyone here looking for happiness? Is anybody joining us by television or the internet? Are you searching now for joy? This passage of scripture and this book as a whole sheds light on the pursuit that is better than the pursuit of happiness. It is a pursuit for meaning that I believe bears the fruit of joy in our life. So Paul gives three clear ways to experience this God-given true joy. In humility, in gratitude, and in purpose. So we're going to zoom in on the first couple verses here and consider this idea to begin with that true joy is rooted in humility. Well, the book opens with a greeting. It's exactly how we expect every letter to open. I think that the uh, art of letter writing is kind of waning 
in today's society. I do most of my correspondence via email, as I'm sure most of you do. But even our emails have a greeting. It's just a whole lot more technical. You know, there's at the top two and who it's sent to, who we copied. Sometimes we blind copy people. And then, of course, who it's from, the date, even the time we sent it, and then a subject line. Well, in the letter here, or in these epistles of this period, there would always be this greeting to identify the writer, the recipient, and then there would be a greeting because we are in constant communication with folks. Paul was not. Neither were the other people of this period of time. So they would extend a very formal but a heartfelt greeting. And so this letter opens by listing two writers and two groups of recipients. It says in verse 1, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, and secondly, including the overseers and deacons. So Paul and Timothy are writing to the saints as well as the overseers and deacons um, in the church at Philippi. This past fall, we looked at Paul's trip to Philippi. Hopefully some of you remember that. Uh, Paul went there with Timothy. He was there was also with Luke and Silas. And this was the first city they stopped in in Macedonia on his second missionary journey. And you remember he arrived and he was looking for people that shared this hope in the one true God. Uh, other, other people that were Jewish. So, but there was no synagogue, so he found down by a riverside some women who had gathered together on the Sabbath to pray. And it's there he met this woman named Lydia. Lydia was a wealthy merchant and she also feared God. But she responded to the gospel and more than likely Lydia's home served as the meeting point of the church or the meeting place for the church at Philippi when it first began. And then Paul and his companion Silas travel through the city uh, to advance the gospel and this little servant girl starts following behind them. And she was afflicted with a demon and she would uh, tell fortunes. Well, Paul turns to her and casts the demon out. Of course, that up, you know, creates upheaval in the city. He gets thrown in prison. And it's somewhere around midnight. Paul and Silas are there. They're singing praises to God when all of a sudden something like an earthquake shows up. Their chains fall off. And remember the jailer, he thought all of the prisoners have escaped. So what does he do? He attempts to take his own life when Paul shouts out to him, don't do it. We're here. And the jailer responds to the gospel. His whole family does, and all of them are baptized. That is the beginning of this church at Philippi. So Paul experienced it. He knew it. And now, probably about 10 years later, he's writing this letter to them. And Paul is writing, and the letter was not just to the leaders of the church, but also to just the saints, the members of the church. And he begins, verse 2, by writing, Grace to you and peace. Now, the traditional way to open a letter... Uh, or to, to open a letter in uh, this period of time would just to be to write greetings. And the Greek word for that is cherian, C-H-A-I-R-I-E-N. Well, Paul kind of does a little play on words here, and he opens the letter C-H-A-R-I-S. So the words are very similar, but it means grace. Paul was famous for taking every moment and every word and packing it with the gospel. One commentator said that the sum total of God's activity towards humanity is grace. But we think of him as just this judgmental God. But the sum total of what he's done is grace, giving us what we don't deserve. So what a great way to greet brothers and sisters in the Lord. So he says grace, he couples it with peace. And he says this is the grace and peace that comes from the Lord Jesus, or comes from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Jesus. 
That's a theological statement. He equates Jesus with God. He is God. Grace and peace also comes from Jesus. And then we skipped over one part of verse 1 that I want to draw your attention to right now. He he identifies himself, Paul and Timothy, right there in verse 1, bondservants of Christ Jesus. Your version of the scripture in front of you may say servant, it may say slave. These are good translations of this Greek word he uses. So this title that was selected to describe Paul and Timothy would have been shocking. He had regularly opened his letters by referring to himself as an apostle of Jesus. He asserted authority. I'm writing from a place of authority because I'm called out by Jesus. I'm an apostle. But here to the Philippians and to a couple of other, in a couple of other letters, I think Romans, perhaps Titus, he refers to himself as a slave. And the Philippians would not have seen this as an honor to call yourself a slave to God. It was intentionality or with intentionality that Paul chooses to forego the term apostle and call himself slave. He is saying, that's who I am. I can be called a lot of things, but you better put in there, I'm a slave to God. Whatever he calls me to do, I do. Everything, my whole life is for him. Most people believe that happiness comes by attaining status or certain positions that are higher. But as believers in Jesus Christ, we recognize that true joy is found in service and humility. There's this phenomenon in our world today by which people kind of measure how successful they are or how, um, you know, um, kind of the status that they achieve. And it's on social media, you know. So they start looking and they say, I wonder how many Facebook friends I have. Because that might say how important I am. Thought about that this week. So I looked on Facebook and I noticed that my wife, Rachel, has more Facebook friends than I do. And I thought, I wonder if that's because they like her more than they like me. And uh, that may be okay because I like her more than I like me most of the time too. So, but we compare ourselves in that way. And you may think that's so silly. But this, we've done this through the ages. It's just, this is just the mode by which we do it today. You know, how many likes did I get on my tweet or my Instagram? Or how many retweets did I get? Or do I have a blue check next to my name? Am I verified by Twitter? But Philippi was also a status-obsessed culture. They were a Roman colony, so they kind of ordered people based on who they were and what they owned and what they had done. So there were those who were the Roman citizens, and that was, kind of gave them a certain level of status. And then there were those who were maybe the military heroes. They judged people by their mode of transportation. Some of them had uh, chariots, and so they were kind of in a different class. And then there were the senators, and only certain people could wear certain clothing, the togas that would be recognized there. And of course, at the top, you have Caesar. And so that's kind of the society that Paul is writing to whenever he says, I'm a slave. He moves himself to the bottom rung. If your goal is happiness through status, status and position, you're going to be let down. Paul demonstrates that joy comes from humility, intentionally seeking the position of service, specifically servant to the Most High God. So let me ask you this, this uh, morning, how's your service muscle? How's it doing? It's a new year, 2019, no excuses. Have you been working it out this year so far? Jesus says to his followers in Matthew 23, verse 11, but the greatest among you shall be your servant. 
So how does Jesus identify greatness? It's based on service. So I'm going to challenge you this morning to seek greatness in 2019 by being a servant. So how are you going to do that? Where are some ways, what are some ways that you can serve that maybe you've been avoiding? Now, we're all called to serve within our families, but man, we end up in our families and we look for other people to serve us. So how can you serve one another? What about in your neighborhoods? What about at work? There are other opportunities here at the church. We'll give you plenty of them. Areas where you can serve. Our Good News Club's uh, kicking off soon. I was talking to Carol Elliott, and she was saying we've got a great group of volunteers going out to Meadowfield Elementary. We also, this year, have volunteers going to Brennan Elementary. It's another excellent opportunity for people to be able to enter the public school and to be able to, you know, uh, share the Lord with folks. We also have uh, pals downstairs, so parents can be up here in worship once every other month. You're serving downstairs, kind of helping to take care of the children, so parents can worship up here. I mentioned last week our internationals department has representatives from about a dozen different nationalities every Sunday. There's no better way to reach the nations than right here. It's a place for you to serve. I know you come here sometimes looking for somebody to serve you, but in 2019, I say work that service muscle out. If you're waiting for happiness by seeking to be served, you're going to be let down. But if you truly want joy, I would say start serving. So secondly, we discover that true joy comes as a byproduct of heartfelt gratitude. I love that song we were just singing. We will remember because you've done so much for us, God. Paul writes about this, verse 3. He says, I thank my God in all my remembrances of you. That's one of those memorable verses from Philippians that people, you know, you see them in, in greeting cards a lot. People quote it a lot. I thank my God every time I remember you. I think sometimes we think of that as lip service. We're like, yeah, right. But think about Paul's circumstances. In some ways, the only joy he was receiving is what he could bring to mind, right? Because he's not around the people there. The people that he cares most about are not with him necessarily. And so it's in his remembrances of them, as he's wearing these chains, that he says, when I think of you, I say, thank you, God. Now, do you think he had reason to grumble about him? Probably. Do you think there were some disappointments with some of them? I imagine so. But he says, in all my remembrances, I say thank you, God, for these folks. We find his gratitude is joyful. He says his prayers of thanksgiving are declared with joy. Well, nobody's surprised that Paul prayed. Of course he would. He's Paul the apostle. But he prayed with joy. And he goes on to say his prayer of thanksgiving is made with confidence. That's what verse 6 talks about. And he says, my prayer of thanksgiving is also proper. It's appropriate. That's what he says in verse 7 and 8. Now I'd point out to you that this reference to joy in verse 4, this is the first reference to joy in this epistle, in this letter. There are about 15 more references. That's why it's thought of as this happiest book in the Bible. Now, perhaps it's not fair for me to hijack this term joy and say that only Christians can experience it. Because I recognize that all kinds of people from all different backgrounds experience joy in life. And that's because we have a great and glorious God. In his providence, he's given us all the ability to experience pleasure and to experience joy in moments. But I do believe that there is a level of joy reserved only for the Christian. And the reason I believe that is because we know joy is fruit 
of the Holy Spirit. Do you know what that means? The evidence of the Holy Spirit in your life as a Christian following Jesus is the joy that starts to bloom. And this happens in all sorts of circumstances. The joy that Christians demonstrate in the midst of great trials, when life is less than we would hope it to be, when we're facing persecution, that joy is like a flag flying to say, King Jesus lives here. He's in residence today. Gordon Fee says, in every truly Christian life, the most obvious evidence of the experience of God's grace and peace is gratitude and joy. That's the evidence of Jesus in your life. So Paul says every time he thinks about them in prayer, he thanks God for them. And then in verse 5, he says he thanks God for their partnership with him in the gospel. These were not just friends. They weren't pals he liked to you know, play games with only or go uh, to entertainment with, you know, view entertainment with. These were partners in the gospel. They were co-laborers advancing God's kingdom in the world. And they were not in Rome, right? They were in Philippi. So you're thinking, how is this panning out here? But one of the things that we learn about the church at Philippi is that they were a very generous church. And so they gave sacrificially so that Paul could go and share. We also know they defended the gospel where they were. They recognized that sacrificing for the gospel was worth it because the gospel is that significant. So in pursuing happiness, most of us are looking for just one more thing in order that we might be happy. We think if I can just have one more, or if I can just one more time be able to do this, then I'll be happy. But I want you to hear me this morning. More never satisfies. More never satisfies. We live like it does, but it does not. When I was in high school, my cousin Amanda went with me on a mission trip to Kentucky. And uh, we were there, and at night, all of a sudden, she was taken to the emergency room with severe pain in her abdomen. The diagnosis was too many Reese cups. That's what happened. I'm sure some of y'all have been there before. You think, one more? Just one more. And all of a sudden, it ends up hurting you, right? More does not satisfy. Rather than looking for more, we need to look around and see, what do we already have? What do I have that I can say thank you for? Rather than seeking more to, uh, so that I'll be joyful. Let me just offer testimony here for a moment. Especially in light of the song we just sang and the music that's been kind of sung over us. I could never, ever praise the Lord enough for what he's done in my life. You could give me a thousand tongues to sing it over and over again. And it would never match up to the gratitude I have to God for what he's given me. Because I recognize that every good thing, every good thing comes from him. Now that's biblical, but I've learned that too. When I think about people and I say, God, you brought them into my life. I mean, how good can you be? I tell you that I think the same things when I'm eating something. Because I love taste buds. Isn't it good God gave you a taste bud? Because it tastes so good. Thank you, God. Every good gift comes from him. But I'm going to tell you, when I count my blessings, I want to be very honest with you. I think of you. One of the sweetest things that the Lord Jesus has done in my life is this church. I was married right here. My wife. We've been here. Our children were all born while we were here. They're growing up here. Some of our closest friendships are here. And then this new, neat opportunity that the Lord has given me. 
And y'all are such an encouragement to me. When I count my blessings, I think of you. And I want you to know that. I recognize that joy is not going to come in the form of more. It's going to be a byproduct of gratitude. So, what blessings do you need to start counting in your own life? I'd say start writing them down. Isn't it funny? When you start thinking of those things, it's impossible not to become joyful. <laughs> so as you count the blessing, it just puts a smile on your face. You know how I know this? All of a sudden you'll take your phone out and you'll start flipping through some of those pictures. And it doesn't take long for smiles to end up on your face, right? Because of the joy that's there. And let me tell you this in case you didn't realize it. When God thinks of you, it brings joy to his heart. I don't know what you think about God. But just in case you've been misinformed, he thanks himself for you. <laughs> because you are such a gift. And he sees the potential in you. And he wants nothing less than to be in relationship with you. If you feel like other people are running for you, away from you, Jesus is running towards you today. So joy comes in humility, it comes in gratitude, and finally joy comes in the form of a life of purpose and intentional living. He says in verse 6, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. That's a sermon in and of itself, and I don't have time to preach it. I've preached it before, but I, I, and it's a memorable verse for us. But what a good refreshment for our souls today. That our great and glorious God who began a good work in you has plans to perfect it, to complete it. I know he'll do that. Now the process of perfecting his good work is not always enjoyable. We have a theological term for this. It's sanctification. That's the process of God perfecting his good work in your life. And let me go ahead and tell you, sanctification is not always pleasurable. It doesn't always bring forth happiness in the moment. Because some of those memorable, miserable experiences and difficult people in your life, God's using those to perfect you into the person he plans for you to be. Some of you are trying to escape those situations right now. You're trying to avoid those difficult people. Because, I mean, that's kind of the given way. If you want to experience joy, cut them out of your life. But God does things a little bit different sometimes. He uses trials. He uses tribulations. He uses troubles. He uses difficult people. All of these things to make you in the person of faith that he has planned for you to be. And the fruit of that pursuit of meaning as God's child is joy. I love this idea that Gordon Fee proposes in his commentary on these verses. He says, believers in Christ are people of the future. They are citizens of heaven. He says, to lose this future orientation. Paul, later on in this book, describes it as straining towards what is ahead. He says, to lose this future orientation is to lose too much. Folks, we endure now because we are straining ahead. Our eyes are fixed on the prize for which we are being called heavenward. So that's what we're pressing towards. So we endure now. We've got too much to gain to get bogged down by trials, troubles, tribulations, difficult people. So we press on. So Paul says it's proper for him to feel this love and gratitude for the Philippians. 
And one of the things that is at work in this letter is Paul is particularly grateful for the Philippians because as he is arrested and persecuted, some people are abandoning him. They're saying, it's too dicey for us to remain friends with him. But not the Philippians. They stand by him. In fact, he alludes to this idea that they're defending the gospel with Paul. Right there in Philippi, he says they are partakers of grace with him. Now, there's maybe some debate about the nuance of that word here. But I am convinced that they were being oppressed just like Paul. I think some of them, some of them were even in chains just like Paul. And Paul is saying we are drinking from the same cup of grace. So it's easy to get tempted into thinking that happiness comes when we have no responsibilities except to think about ourselves and to seek happiness. But Paul saw joy coming as a byproduct of a life lived with purpose, specifically the purpose of advancing the gospel. So if happiness is your ultimate goal, you'll never find it. I'm allergic to cats. I don't like to be around them because of that reason. I'm going to do my best not to come across as an animal hater here, okay? Because I know some of you love cats. I have family members that love cats. And I've noticed something about cat lovers. When they see a cat, they get down and they say, here, kitty, 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 kitty. And you know what the cat does? It goes the other way. (laughs) It's just how cats are, right? That's the nature of the cat. But those of us who sit over there and try to ignore the cat, pretend like it's not there, think, please do not come over here. What does it do? When you least expect it, it rubs up against your leg, lets that tail wave in the air, hops in your lap. You're like, "Mm," you know? (laughs) William Bennett has said, happiness is like a cat. If you try to coax it or call it, it will avoid you. It will never come. But if you pay no attention to it and go about your business, you'll find it rubbing against your legs and jumping into your lap. If you want to find happiness, true joy, it is found in a life of purpose, not in a pursuit of happiness. So I want to invite you this morning to seek joy by living your life on mission for the gospel. Here's the good news. Jesus has come. It doesn't take much to figure out our world's messed up. But Jesus is making it right. It began as he shed his blood on the cross and as he was resurrected from the dead. That's the good news. And so live for that. Make sure other people know about that. That's what matters most. So a life centered on the gospel is one of meaning which bears the fruit of joy in your life. This morning I would invite you to respond to the Lord as he's speaking to you. For the believer, maybe you'd ask, what's the next step for me? Maybe it's an action of service. Maybe it is in stopping the grumbling and starting the thanking God. Maybe it's in joining the church today or following in believer's baptism. For the one who doesn't know the Lord, maybe it's saying yes to Jesus today. I can guarantee you, he says yes to you. And so all it takes to be a child of God is to believe on his name and to receive him. Would you do that today? I can guarantee you that I can assure you, God wants you to experience joy in this life. Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity to gather together. We thank you for your word. We thank you how you challenge us with it. Now, Lord, I pray that you would help us not to walk away and forget what you've done. But Lord, help us to live our lives for you. Father, I pray particularly for those who you're speaking to this morning, that they would say yes to whatever it is you're calling them to. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. So we come to a time of invitation. I'm gonna be down front. Some of you have decisions to make. And if you wanna make that decision public, I'd invite you forward. If you wanna join our church, if you want to respond to the gospel, I'll be right here, you come. I'll invite you to stand. Our choir will sing, you respond.